I'm talking today with Dr. Robert Stackpole, author of Divine Mercy, a guide from Genesis to Benedict the 16th. Robert, it's good to talk to you today. Yes, yeah, good to be back with you again, Chris, and uh, first time in the new year. And sadly, the first the first year that we'll be without Benedict in a while. So that'll be yeah. that'll be an adjustment period to just know that he's actually gone. Yeah, a long while, huh? He's been uh, at the forefront of the church for really almost six decades since he was an expert at the Second Vatican Council, a theological mm -hmm. expert. So 60 years he was at the forefront of theological leadership as well as, of course, the papal leadership of the church. And he was active both as as a churchman and also as a theologian during much of the time that you were, you've been studying theology, I think. You became a Catholic during the pontificate of John Paul, right? Yes, that's right. Did yeah, any the early 90s. In, okay. Did any of Cardinal Ratzinger's work help you in your conversion or influence your conversion at all? Yeah, there was one book, Chris, that really made a big impact on my life, and that was a, a book called that he wrote. It's now published by Ignatius Press, uh, titled Called to Communion, Understanding the Nature of the Church. Hmm. And it is just as advertised, right? It's, a, it's actually not a long book. It's maybe 200 pages, mm -hmm. but it's a beautiful series of in-depth meditations classic Benedict. Mm -hmm. It's um, very spiritually in-depth and reflective, but, you know, tapping into the top scholarship and top scholarly discussion at the time of what the church is and how it's both um, papal and conciliar, how it uh, it balances lay and priestly and, and episcopal mm -hmm. um, ministries all in one. There's a very kind of organic vision of the church mm -hmm. rooted all the time in scripture and in the early, the witness of the early Christians, the early fathers. So I, I, the book was fantastic. I think it's one of the best things he ever wrote. And in some ways, a, mm -hmm. a well-kept secret because it's overshadowed by some of his more famous books. But yeah. if you want a terrific book on the church in 200 pages, uh, Benedict's Call to Communion is, yeah. is fantastic. Why did that make such a difference? What, what For our listeners, what would be the difference between that you were a former conception of the church and the, the one that Benedict kind of made clear to you in that? Well, I, again, I think in, in some ways it's Benedict's balance mm -hmm. that was, you know, he he shows there's a real organic balance in the church between papal primacy, mm -hmm. uh, Episcopal leadership, uh, the lay, the voice and witness of the laity and how each one depends on the other. Very mm -hmm. Again, a very organic yeah. kind of conception of the church. And we tend to think of Benedict as, you know, some kind of um, authoritarian, you know, uh, always pushing the central authority of the papacy. And mm -hmm. he got this kind of a bad rap from the, uh, you might say, the the liberal media in that regard. Yeah. But he really wasn't. That's a caricature of him. He he did speak up, speak up for mm -hmm. papal authority and uh, in the church at a time when it was um, called being called into question. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because he was a radical centralist or authoritarian. It's yeah. just because he thought, you know, the about the the organic balance of the church. Uh, was being tipped too mm -hmm. far in one direction. Yeah, the misunderstandings surrounding him were, were much like what Chesterton talked about, the misunderstandings surrounding the church. The left thinks him too far right, the right thinks him too far left, meaning he's probably right where he should be. Yeah, and, and you know, he got this he got this rap of being God's Rottweiler, right? Yep. When he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And the idea where he was a kind of mean mm -hmm. uh, guy who wanted to discipline everybody who didn't agree with him. Yep. He was an intolerant, a bigot, a whatever, mm -hmm. triumphalist, whatever label you want to throw at him. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, again, that's a caricature. The, mm -hmm. um, 
He certainly, he certainly, in one sense, when he was head of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, mm -hmm. he dished out some tough love, you might say. Yeah. But tough love is love. Uh, tough love yeah. is when somebody who really cares about you cares about you so much they want to mm -hmm. try to stop you from committing self-destruction. Yeah. And so he was. Uh, yes, he he stuck up for the church's doctrines and authority because mm -hmm. it was a time in the church when there was a lot of turmoil inside the church and people um, extravagantly calling all that into question. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it, it wasn't because he was an authoritarian personality. It was just because uh, he knew where the truth lay. And as you as you know, Chris, uh, his his motto as a bishop in Germany mm -hmm. was cooperators with the truth. Mm -hmm. He said, well, you know, what's under threat in our time that it's an age of skepticism, of yeah. relativism, of nihilism, right? People is questioning whether there is any truth to be found. And even if there was, whether we can find it mm -hmm. and therefore going their own way. But, yeah. you know, he let's use the analogy of a of a, a train on the railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. He basically told the church, stay on the tracks. Yeah because that will get us where we all need to go. You know, the church is on a journey into ever greater truth and ever greater witness to the mm -hmm. gospel. Just stay on the on the tracks given to us through Christ and the apostles in the church. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, some people want to go their own way. So, oh, come on, you know, that's too narrow. That's bigoted. Mm -hmm. That's intolerant. Why can't we get off the tracks? Yeah. Why can't we take the train off the track? Because it'll derail and crash. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, that's not being mean and, and authoritarian. That's just mm -hmm. being realistic. Yeah. And again, offering some tough love. When everyone is about to run off the cliff, to bark at them is not to do something wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the most loving thing to do. Yeah. Now, did you ever get to meet him, either as cardinal or as pope? You know, I never did. I, mm -hmm. I wish I had. I was in, in Rome studying for a year and a half mm -hmm. when he was prefect of the Sacred Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. But I never got to meet him, although I knew several friends that did yeah. and uh, who knew him and even worked with him. And they all said the same thing, Chris. Mm -hmm. They said he was the most kind-hearted, uh, charitable man, mm -hmm. uh, very humble man as well. Again, very different than the media image of, of God's yeah. Rottweiler, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating how, how you know, just calcified that that image had become over the course of his career and yet how comprehensively anyone who met him would just describe him completely differently um, and I in in a lot of ways I suppose that's that's very much after the model of Christ in the Gospels where clearly you know words getting around about this guy but also he's completely different than what anyone expects um, so talk to me a bit about um, especially the Divine Mercy connection. How did Cardinal Ratzinger work with St. John Paul II on establishing the Divine Mercy message and devotion in the church's life? You know, Chris, you may know more about this than I do. I, I don't know if there's been anything written that really gives us the behind-the-scenes mm -hmm. details about about their co collaboration, but you know it had to happen. Yeah. Because as prefect of the Sacred Congregation, for example, mm -hmm. he would have been... Uh, directly and intimately involved in the production of John Paul's encyclical, Dive Sin Misericordia, Rich in Mercy. Um, and he was John Paul's chief theological advisor who advised him on all the main things that John Paul wrote. Uh, so, you know, there, where, as John Paul is laying the foundations of the core of, of divine mercy theology, one might say, in our time, mm -hmm. Cardinal Ratzinger was definitely involved in that. Uh, whether he was also 
uh, intimately involved in the, uh, say, the establishment of Divine Mercy Sunday. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Maybe you know. Maybe you've read more than I have on that. No, not, I wouldn't, I don't know. I mean, a lot of that, I think, went through the Congregation for Divine Worship. And, mm -hmm. and of course, everything's complicated by, with the current reform of the Curia, all the names have changed, and now it's the dicastery right. of the Doctrine of the Faith, and, but at the time, Congregation. Um, and I think, and I think a lot of the theological work had been completed before he was in, because the ban was lifted in 678, right? Mm -hmm. The year of three popes. Yeah. Um, and so I think that he would have been kind of receiving a fair amount of the, the subsequent kind of the fruits of that, of that round of labors. Um, I think really kind of the main thing, though, is that through his intensive biblical theology, through his, his study and his work, he made very clear uh, across his, his body of writings, really, that, that God is love. That and that love is merciful love, such that when he was pope, he has that great quote about the divine mercy is the nucleus of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And since you the know, I, mm -hmm. I think I think we ought to read that one for your okay for our listeners because uh, this is the one that Dave came in his book on uh, uh, on Pope Benedict's thought. Uh, he said this is the five star quote yeah. on Benedict of mercy because it sums up. His, uh, you know, his whole, as it were, theology and why mm -hmm. he explains why it's the central nucleus of the gospel. So, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read yeah, it. Go ahead. I'll read it out. Here's what Benedict said. This is at his Regina Chaley address on Divine Mercy Sunday, March 30th, 2008, mm -hmm. uh, just before I believe the the first World Apostolic Congress on Mercy. Mm -hmm. He says this: Indeed, mercy is the central nucleus of the gospel message. It's the very name of God the face with which he revealed himself in the old covenant and fully in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the incarnation of creative and redemptive love. May this merciful love also shine on the face of the church and show itself through the sacraments, in particular that of reconciliation and works of charity, both communitarian and, and individual. Mm -hmm. May all that the church says and does manifest the mercy God feels for man and therefore for us. From divine mercy, which brings peace to hearts, genuine peace flows into the world, peace between different peoples, cultures, and religions. Mm -hmm. So so there it is. Divine mercy is the center of the gospel message, he says. It's manifested through the sacraments, made present and, and effective in our lives, especially through the sacraments and works of mercy done by the church. Mm -hmm. And it, he says it's also the only true source of peace for every human heart and for the mm -hmm. human community. So he sees it as this kind of um, radiant center, which yeah. shines out in every direction, in every aspect of the church's life and mm -hmm. every aspect of the church's mission, illuminating it yeah. all. Well, and I think that can sound to people like a, kind of a, a, a I, I hesitate to say trite saying, but but as, as the sort of one-liner that a pope might want in a speech, but Benedict wasn't like that. That all of his all of his writings, all of his speeches, all of his homilies, it was the fruit of decades of reading and research and conversations with the best theologians in the world, such that for him to have said that, you have this profound thesis statement about all of salvation history, right? Yeah, exactly. And he's he's not just flying a flag for Saint Faustina, yeah. right? I know he had, of course, the greatest respect and love for Saint Faustina, but mm -hmm. the mere fact that we have in Benedict, a 
a papal theologian who's also a biblical theologian mm -hmm. uh, and and saying things like this about divine mercy and showing how in in so many of his writings how the merciful love of god is at the center of everything mm -hmm. what that shows is that the divine mercy message is not just something uh, Jesus dropped on the church through yep. St. Faustina's diary, mm -hmm. but her diary actually amplifies what's at the yeah. very heart of the gospel, at the very heart of the teachings of the fathers and the mm -hmm. saints. Uh, and, and Benedict is the, is the one really in many ways pulls all that together mm -hmm. and unfolds unfolds it for us. I'm thinking especially if, you're, uh, if our listeners ever get a chance to read Benedict's meditations on the different characters in the the biblical story mm -hmm. he's got a there's a couple books where he gives i think there were just homilies so a couple pages each on all the main characters peter paul uh martha mary uh the old testament prophets as well and so often he comes back to god's merciful love and how it operated in and through that personal mm -hmm. that person's life in as you say in salvation history yeah. So he roots us. He roots the whole thing, kind of so deeply in Scripture. The, it, it, I, think, I hope it. I hope it puts an end once and for all the claim. All that Faustina stuff. It's it's all just you know special, yeah. uh, private revelations, right? Yeah. Well, it's far from that. It's a. It's an amplification of the very heart yeah. of the biblical message, which really is the role of authentic private revelation, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, as the Catechism tells us, and mm -hmm. the Second Vatican Council said that as well. Yeah, and the, the Council was a Council of Mercy, and one that Cardinal Ratzinger, before he was Cardinal Ratzinger, before he was Pope Benedict, played a huge role in as a paratus, a theological advisor to, I think, Cardinal Fring of Cologne? I'm yes, sure right. I'm mispronouncing his name, but um, the, the Council wouldn't have been what it was without Pope Benedict. Um, which I'm not sure how many of my generation remember or how many uh, young Catholics even have a clue about that not only was he a hugely important figure as Pope, but he was hugely important for most of his working life as an ordained priest. Right. And that's how we get also through Pope Benedict, mm -hmm. uh, through his writings as Cardinal Ratzinger and, and as Bishop, um, and also through John Paul II. Here we have two figures who were both very active and deeply involved in Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And then they become, by the Holy Spirit, if you will, the church's official interpreters mm -hmm. of Vatican II. Because, as you know, after the Second Vatican Council, a lot mm -hmm. of different groups in the church tried to put their own spin on it. Uh, but these guys were right at the heart of it. They knew exactly mm -hmm. what the Holy Spirit was doing there. And they unfolded it in their life and in their writings, in their pontificates. Yeah. Well, and, and kind of reminded everyone of the boundaries, I think, in a lot of ways. I think that Paul VI did what he could, and then John Paul comes in, and, and with Ratzinger's help and collaboration, you get that, that reminder of the fundamentals, that yes, a lot has changed, but not everything. Um, more, more change than I think a lot of people were comfortable with, more changed than I think a lot of people thought was possible. But also, uh, Ratzinger and John Paul, while being, you know, modern men, modern intellectuals, brilliant minds, also had the humility to know that they had received something that was greater than anything we could come up with. And mm -hmm. so that we have a job of handing that on intact as well. Yeah, and they're, they're, they realized that the, um, 
the purpose of Vatican II is not to change the church, church's central doctrine, mm -hmm. but to talk about how do we witness to that in the yeah. modern world? How do we express that in a way that the modern world can hear it? Because mm -hmm. the, the church had gone through a, you know, 150 years or so where mostly what she yeah. was doing was hurling anathemas at, at uh, various bad things that were happening, mm -hmm. and they were bad things, and they deserved anathemas, like yeah. Freemasonry or uh, communism or fascism, mm -hmm. right? And of course, those things had to be denounced and called yeah. what they were, which was evil. Mm -hmm. But in Vatican II, the, in part under, with, through the influence of Cardinal Ratzinger and uh, Bishop Ratzinger, actually, he wasn't bishop even at that time, no. theologian Ratzinger yes. at that time. Father Ratzinger, uh, yeah. And Cardinal, and Cardinal Wojtyla, mm -hmm. uh, what they did was um, uh, they showed that, uh, you know, without compromising the church's message, the divine revelation given to the church mm -hmm. through Christ and the apostles. There are new ways to express that, not only liturgically, uh, but also in um, ways of talking about the gospel mm -hmm. that connect with some things in the that the modern world actually has right, not wrong, yeah. and builds on that. Kind of like St. Paul on the Areopagus, mm -hmm. right? He preached to the Athenians. He didn't just tell them all the things they're getting wrong. He started with a few things they thought they were getting right yep. and built on those and showed how the gospel completed those mm -hmm. and perfected those. And this was very much, I think, the strategy that John Paul and Benedict saw in the Second Vatican Council and, and followed uh, St. Paul's lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just then served as these tremendous models for the rest of us on how to understand and appreciate it. Um, where would we be without the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for instance? Right, of which uh, Benedict was the principal editor, right? Mm -hmm. He oversaw the, uh, really the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is sort of, it is to Vatican II in a lot of ways what the Roman Catechism was to Trent, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, Offer. most definitely. It's, it, you know, if you, if you look at Christian history, both mm -hmm. of those documents you mentioned, the Roman Catechism and uh, our present Catechism, are in remarkable documents. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they're a complete overview yeah. of the central teachings of the church. No other church community or denomination or anything has ever produced something like this, you know, mm -hmm. gathered this all up into one place. Sure, they've had shorter statements, you know, five or so, the Westminster Confession or the Confession of Augsburg or something, you know, these are 10-page documents. Nobody's done what the Catholic Church has done is sum up the whole thing in a rich teaching document. Yeah. Gather up the whole development of doctrine at that up to that point in time, you know, in 500 pages mm -hmm. uh, of incredibly in-depth teaching. So monumental achievement of of, yeah. of uh, Cardinal Rasser and John Paul II. Yep. Let me bring back to what you'd mentioned earlier about Dave came and the Divine Mercy man, the the Pope Benedict's teaching on Divine Mercy. Dave was really excited about uh, what what Benedict had given as a Divine Mercy mandate. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, the, the Divine Mercy mandate was something he said right at the end of the First World Apostolic Congress on Mercy. And let's, mm -hmm. let's mention, say a little bit more about that to your listeners as well. Uh, they may know this because there have been a series now of World Apostolic Congresses on Mercy mm -hmm. since then, but it was Pope Benedict, who kicked this all off by yep. giving permission and, in fact, encouragement to do the first one in Rome as the start of a whole series of global world congresses on mercy. Mm -hmm. um, and he really, at the near the start of that um, uh, congress, he gave that homily with that five-star message that we quoted earlier, that, that mercy is the central nucleus of the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, but then at the end, I'm just poking around my notes. I know I scribbled it down here. 
um, he, he gave a kind of surprise statement because it was um, right at the, the kind of closing statement of the Congress, and he called it his papal mandate. He called it his mandate, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, this is the mandate. So he's actually charging the delegates there who represent the church from all over the world, go forth and be witnesses of God's mercy, a source of hope for every person and for the whole world. So, you know, there it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Again, but a kind of charge to the whole church. The church needs us to be witnesses of God's mercy, not only to believe it mm -hmm. or, or to practice a devotion to it, but actually to witness it in our lives, uh, in our relationships, in our families, at work, wherever mm -hmm. we are, to um, be, as it were, uh, windows through which the light of God's mercy can shine. And, and he says, a source of hope for every person and for the whole world. There he picks up the theme that was so dear to the heart of John Paul mm -hmm. that where can the world find hope mm -hmm. but in divine mercy, in God's merciful love? And, yeah. and Benedict's the same theme as well. Um, we look at the world around us, it's a mess. Yeah. In fact, if you look back at history, it's always been a mess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the only times it hasn't been a mess are mm -hmm. when people and great saints have turned to the merciful love of God. Uh, and so he's. He's, he's, in a sense, stating the obvious, but it needs to be restated because we sometimes lose heart, right? We get negative. We get despairing. Mm -hmm. says, no, there's God's merciful love abides. He says in one of his, in several places in his speeches, he says it puts a limit on, on evil, right? Divine mercy, first of all, limits the how far that God will allow evil to go. And then it has the power ultimately to overcome evil in the lives of individuals, but also in the lives of the world, in the life of the world. And and I guess then you could take this as a, a mandate, not just for the people who are at the Wakecom, but a mandate in a sense for all disciples of Christ, right? Yeah, exactly. Including uh, the Marian fathers and and all the uh, all those who all of those who work in Marian missions and apostles or as Marian helpers living in the world. Um, you, I, you've probably quoted this before on your podcast, but it was Pope John Paul II who gave, as it were, the same kind of mandate to the Marians back in the 1980s. Uh, be apostles of divine mercy. Uh, and follow the example of St. Faustina. He said, be apostles of divine mercy under the maternal and loving guidance of Mary. Mm -hmm. And again, he wasn't just talking to the Marian fathers. He's he talking about the whole... The whole, the, all those associated with the Marians, including yeah. all us lay folk who, uh, you know, walk with them and journey with them and, and witness with them to God's mercy in the in the world. Yeah, yeah. I I I have long thought that we are safest um, writing and speaking when we are repeating what our betters like John Paul and Benedict have taught us, and just standing. You know, when in doubt, you know, I turn to. I turn to those two in their in their pontificates in their in their writings outside of the pontificates. Um, interestingly, both were kind of innovators of that genre of papal writings that aren't papal writings. 
um, right. of books. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crossing the Threshold of Hope by John Paul II is one of the best just sort of casual conversations that's not casual at all because he's brilliant about modern philosophy and theology and the different religions and the life of the church and, and just where we are and where we're going. Benedict had that whole genre, the Ratzinger Report, kind of the start of it. But then um, the collaboration with the German journalist Peter Seewald, and I, again, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing the name, um, but but he was the reason why Peter Seewald returned to the practice of the faith, that, that Seewald knew here was this powerful, influential, brilliant cardinal. When he met him, though, it, it, it changed everything for him, because here is a guy who truly believes what he's talking about. It's not about power for this guy. It's about Jesus Christ. And, and the, the turning point for Seewald was when, when Cardinal Ratzinger, he asked Cardinal Ratzinger, how many paths are there to God? And Cardinal Ratzinger, who also, by the way, had done the document um, um, Dominus Jesus, in which it was firmly reasserted that Jesus is, is the path, Ratzinger said to him, there are as many paths as there are people. And Seewald said, this, this blew my mind. <laughs> you know, you have this guy known as the Panzer Cardinal or this, that, who, who is that both realistic and also is generous. You know, like the one path is Jesus, but there's a broad lot. There's a lot of lanes in it, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, you, there are many paths up the mountain. Yeah. Uh, whether whether we know him by name or not, the one who can, t the only one who can take us up that path, is Jesus, right? The Word made flesh, our our Savior. Mm -hmm. But there are many who don't know him by name, uh, but nevertheless respond in the depths of our hearts to him without time. And one day they will know him by name for sure. Uh, but there, that's why. There, as um, Cardinal Ratzinger said, there are many paths up the mountain. Uh, the name of the guide who's taking us up that yeah. path, we might not know it yet, but his name is Jesus. Yeah. Well, and thank God for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's that tremendous image in one of um, the Chronicles of Narnia where I think, um, I'm forgetting his name, the horse and his boy, where he's, they're traveling in the fog. And he knows there's something next to him, but he doesn't know what it is or who it is. They travel yeah. on a bit further, and suddenly he realizes it's a big something or other. And further on, and oh, that's a lion. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's little boy Shasta, right? Yeah. Who's, uh, who's the, the main character who's going through the going through the mountain mist. Yeah. And at first he's terrified, right? Mm -hmm. What is this lurking presence? Yeah. You know, with me along my path. And then, of course, Aslan, the mm -hmm. lion, tells him his whole life story because yeah. he says what we're, we're at we're all too apt to do and and uh benedict the pastor would say uh you know don't go down that path it's the path of despair we're apt to fall into self-pity right and he says at one point shasta says i am the un unluckiest boy that ever lived because of many trials and tribulations that happened to him but the the lion says i don't call you unlucky yeah. And he says, how can you say that? And then Aslan reveals to him all the ways in secret that he's been operative in his life that, Aslan, uh, that Shasta didn't even realize it. So that's got to be happening in, in everyone's life in various ways, whether they're Christians or not, or Catholic Christians or not yet, yeah. um, or, or not. You know, he's, he's lurking about in our lives in the, in the mists and in the depths of our hearts. And I think that was, that was crucial to Benedict's kind of the, the, I mean, maybe that's the source of some of the reputation. Here is a guy who knew Jesus from his youth and was was a very faith-filled, even as a little boy, and and dedicated his life to collaborating with Jesus as truth. 
in one of the most disconcerting aspects of the divinity that we've got, truth. Um, and, and was true to that was, so you get, the closer you get to Ratzinger, the closer you get to Jesus, which meant the, clo- you know, the more the lion is clearly out of the mist, like you're, you are next to something both beautiful and terrible. Um, and I think that, I think that maybe he was such a great mediator for the truth of God that, that I suppose it was easy for the world to kind of lose sight of the gentility, the humility that also came from his very clear appreciation of God's love. Yeah, and I think that the two actually go together, just yeah. to play around with that Narnia story. If you see Aslan really clearly and mm-hmm. know him personally and in depth, mm-hmm. then it's much easier for you to find him working secretly in other lives where he's not appearing clearly to other people, right? Mm -hmm. Who don't know him so well. So people think of these as alternatives. If somebody has a strong and clear, explicit faith in the church, the church's doctrines about Christ and the gospel picture of Christ, then that must make you narrow and uh, intolerant. Not not really. If you really know Christ, then you'll be able to recognize his footprints, if you will, uh, secretly at work in other lives, precisely because you know the size of his shoes, right? That's how well you know him. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and that there's one thing that Benedict did that I think people didn't appreciate was that Benedict could find the seeds of the gospel in all sorts of places that people would think that he would just write off, but he yeah. was a deep appreciator of where you could find the seeds of truth, the seeds of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, in other philosophies, in other religions, in you know, in the hints and the rumors that are there, because. There is only one God. And so when people encounter the divine, they're having some sort of encounter with the God who is Jesus Christ. Some yeah, and sort. You know, one way we know that that uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger was very much like Shasta mm-hmm. uh, in that story from Narnia, mm-hmm. uh, that he had a m- more than one experience of clear experience of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ and knew him so well is by that tremendous trilogy that he wrote as Pope Jesus of Nazareth, the mm-hmm. trilogy on the Gospels. Yep. And this is, I think, his lasting monument really to to scholarship. Um, yep. the, those books are, are simply incredible. Yep. They, uh, you know, whenever has a reigning Pope sat down and wrote three in-depth books yep. on the um, on every aspect of the Gospels, right? Yeah. Historical, critical approach, spiritual depth of the Gospels, doctrinal message. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an incredible thing. So if uh, somebody wants to spend a, a, a good couple of years digging in yeah. to the depths of Jesus Christ, there's no better place to go yeah. than Benedict's trilogy. And he... I mean, he wrote it as a scholar. He said, it's not part of my papal magisterium because this is, mm-hmm. there's a lot of scholarly things which the church does not officially endorse. Mm-hmm. Um, so he didn't want to, you know, make it that people had to accept. Yep. Um, once again, his, his breadth of vision and broadness of mind there. Um, but it's, um, you know, it, it's an in-depth look of Jesus Christ, which is matchless in the history of papal writings. Yeah. Short of St. Peter himself, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Mark's gospel, which probably reflects it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, that is the, that is one of the great proofs of the truth of the faith, I think, is that you've got, you've got people today writing 
from this lived experience of Jesus that resonates with every previous account of the saints, of the apostles who walked with him, of the gospels themselves, that there's a continuity of, of um, relationship that doesn't make sense if Jesus was simply a historical figure, makes no sense if he didn't exist, but that the historical scholarship supports his existence. The, the, you know, the power of the message is clear even to those who don't believe. But, but that relationship and, and the difference it makes in people's lives makes no sense if he's not God. Yeah, and, and he, he does this in the, that trilogy. He looks at all the historical mm -hmm. issues, right? And so how do we know what we know about Jesus? Can we really know that he said and did these things? And then he looks in depth and says that the, the truth that, that comes mm -hmm. out of the, the real historical Jesus is the Christ of faith. There's no contradiction, as the old uh, German scholars used to say back in the 19th century, early 20th century. Well, there's yeah. the Jesus of history, and he's not the Christ of faith. He's... Um, whatever, some kind of, you know, Marxian revolutionary or bourgeois liberal middle-class guy, mm -hmm. um, but he's not the Christ of the Church's faith. And Benedict bridges that gap yeah. beautifully in that book. In, in a certain sense, you know, that trilogy is also poignant, though. Mm -hmm. let's, I don't want to end on a down note here, but let's remember that Benedict was human, mm -hmm. uh, and um, he, his papacy was a rough go at times. Yeah. A few stumbles that um, his Regenberg address, where he mm -hmm. he said things as a scholar about Islam that you you can say as a scholar, but not really as pope because yeah. you have to. He learned that the hard way, and there was a big blow up in the Islamic community and, mm -hmm. and crisis in the church's relationship with Muslims for a while, just because you know he he was a scholar at heart, right? Yeah, and he had to grow into the job. The uh, the same thing. There was a um, I know this being a an Anglo Catholic from the Anglo Catholic tradition, right? That that um, there was a kind of botched attempt to uh, uh, create a bridge to Anglo-Catholics called the Anglican Ordinariate, and it all started with good intentions, didn't work. The, the Pope struggled with the uh, administrative side of being Pope. There's no, he would be the first to admit it, right? That's one of the reasons he stepped down. It was just too much for him mm -hmm. uh, because of his age, but also because that's not where his gifts were. You know, his gifts were as a scholar mm -hmm. and as a teacher, and as a preacher, right? And and in those areas, uh, he's he's simply, you know, one of the greatest of all time amongst popes. Yeah. Um, we got we got maybe a little spoiled by having a uh, John Paul who could do everything, right? He was a kind of yeah. the, a Renaissance pope, right? Who, could, who was a missionary and a scholar and a poet and a playwright and a an administrator and mm -hmm. a, you know everything all at once. Yeah. And uh, it, it's that's a tough act to follow. And yeah, so Benedict, absolutely. Benedict, you know, struggled a bit with some aspects of the papacy that he mm -hmm. wasn't, or his gifts didn't lie, but he certainly enriched the church in those aspects where his his charisms and gifts did lie. Well, and I think I think it does go back to his central point about divine mercy is the nucleus of the gospel, and and that goes well with what Father Seraphim always insisted upon, which is that divine mercy is incarnate in Jesus, that that Jesus is in a particular way. The mercy of God given to us, and I think, you know, it. One of the great, one of the things that really encourages me is that, you know, we we both work for the guys who promote divine mercy. We've been tasked with that, not the guys who promote divine justice. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that, you know, we're in order to do this well. You kind of just have to get out of the way of God. You don't. You don't yourself need to be perfect now. You're proclaiming his goodness, not your own. 
And the, that's why it's such a message of hope, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. Because if we had to be perfect now, you, you and I and everybody else are hooped, right? Yeah, and it, really hooped. well, and it, and it it is it is, I don't know. It feels like permission to be humble. Because um, mm-hmm. what makes this credible? Why should anyone listen? Well, you don't need to listen to me necessarily, but this thing that I'm giving you is infinitely valuable. Don't listen to me. Listen to Seraph. Listen to you. Listen to, you know, pick another teacher. Fine. But divine mercy <laughs> is worth everything. Right. And, and, and we, will, we will bumble and fumble and stumble as, as those, uh, you know, you and I who work for Marian Apostolates, but also for, for, for people who are, um, any of our listeners who are listening mm-hmm. to this, who are trying to live out the discipleship of Christ in the world, right? Yeah. Of course, we're going we're gonna to stumble around sometimes, our mm-hmm. human weakness, sometimes our sins will get in the way, but the, the yeah. good news of the message, which was right at the heart of what Benedict taught, yeah. is that we don't have to defend our own perfection mm-hmm. because we don't have it. Yeah. We don't have to pretend that we've got it, and we don't have to be ashamed and despair because mm-hmm. we're imperfect. Yeah. We're, on a, we're on a journey of sanctification by the merciful love of God. We're journeying together. Uh, and um, the message and the grace of God is way bigger than us. Thanks be to God. And that leaves room then to set your ego aside because it is it is unnecessary. <laughs> Thank God. Um, if you had to recommend one one place to start reading Benedict, where would you recommend? What book? Uh, what one place document? to start? Hmm. I think probably the most engaging is the Ratzinger Report. Okay. That interview, that set of interviews that was done, uh, I guess it was in the... Uh, late 80s? Was that right? The, the late 80s? But yeah, with um, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was interviewed and mm-hmm. given his kind of vision of the where the church was and where it was going. Yeah. And uh, there it's it's so clear and so in, mm-hmm. um, so powerful, so engaging. I think that really opens up the mind and the heart of the guy. But there'll be a book, perhaps you've read it and I haven't. Um, I know I haven't read the book, but perhaps you have. That's um, Scott Hahn's book on... Uh, Think of, what's it called? Covenant and Covenant and Communion. Yep. Yeah, yeah. A summary of uh, mm-hmm. the theology and and the biblical theology, in particular, of Pope Benedict. It's one on my to read yeah. shelf. I haven't got there yet. That's that one's gorgeous. I would say though, after the Ratzinger report, I would recommend people to pick up Salt of the Earth by Peter Sewald. That first interview that he did with Ratzinger changed his life. Convinced me when Benedict was first elected that yeah, we're lucky to have this guy. Because mm-hmm. there was nothing of the stereotype about it. You had this you had this encounter with this incredible mind and this incredibly wide-ranging view of where things were in relation between the church and the world, between Christ and his church, and all the rest of that that was just so ba- like you said, just so balanced and and just so um, open to the facts. Um, there was nothing of of the the, the Grand Inquisitor about it. Um, and it's also fairly readable. Um, and, but then, of course, after that, you need to pick up Divine Mercy, A Guide from Genesis to Benedict Sixteenth by Robert Stackpole. And, How did we get there? <laughs> and take a look at, at his, his role in that long line of teachers of Divine Mercy throughout the history of salvation, not just the history of the Church. Robert, thanks so much for being with me today. Okay, it's been great to be with you, Chris, and look forward to being with you again in the future. To order Divine Mercy, a guide from Genesis to Benedict XVI, please visit shopmercy.org. This has been Sparks of Mercy. Thanks for listening. Pray for me, I'll pray for you. Jesus, I trust in you.
I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Thank you.